If you guys didn't know, uh, my wife Ellie and I, we have three kids. So Blaze and Leo are three and two, and we actually just welcomed our third son, Silas Graham, into the world at the end of January. Um, So yeah, sweet. Um, Though he's our third son, he was our first pregnancy. Our first two boys were adopted. And I think I was struck, one of the first weeks back to church, Jake was teaching in Revelation 6 and 7, and he referenced Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end times, and he says, these are but the beginning of birth pains. And I was like, whoa, that's different now. Like, having been through, not me personally, but having been in the room during child labor, I was like, oh, birth pains? Yeah, that kind of resonates. Uh, I will say, though, I was pretty proud. Several years ago, my wife, Ellie, got her wisdom teeth out, and I passed out when she got her wisdom teeth out, and I didn't pass out when she gave birth. So I was like, hey, I'm growing. I'm improving. But as I think about this child labor process, uh, both me personally and having several friends kind of in that age range where they're getting pregnant, they're about to have kids, I think there's two ditches that people tend to fall in when it comes to child labor. And these ditches are being fearful or being ignorant. Here's what I mean. There's one camp of people as they think about child labor, they're like, this freaks me out, right? I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to listen to all the podcasts. I'm going to make my flow chart of a birthing plan just in case anything goes wrong. I have like a 75-step process so that child labor goes smoothly, They're afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen. But then you have the other camp. This is probably more of where I was, which is like, hey, we're going to have a baby. We'll figure it out, right? Like, we don't need to think about it. Once we're in the labor and delivery room, we'll we'll make it happen. And I just have to say, like, if you are pregnant or planning to become pregnant, there has to be a better way than just being afraid or being ignorant. Like, somewhere in the middle has has to happen, And I think the same is true when it comes to this book of Revelation that we've been in these last several weeks. As we start to talk about the end times and what's coming, and as we dig in today, we're talking about the devil, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. I think the same thing is actually true about many of us with these two ditches. We have one camp of people who are afraid. They are fearful. You're reading the books You're listening to the podcast, you're doing all the research, you're analyzing culture, and you're looking at conspiracy theories, and you're afraid. But then there's the other side that's just like, yep, it's all going to burn one day, we'll figure it out. And I have to say to us, Veritas, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way than being fearful or being ignorant. And as we jump into Revelation 12, we're getting to the middle of this book where what God is going to do for John, the author, he's kind of peeling back the layers of his eyes and he's saying, I want you to know what's actually going on, okay? There's intense suffering happening. You're under incredible persecution. Like we've even seen in Revelation, God say more Christians are going to have to die. This is but the beginning of the birth pains. But what what God is going to show John today is that there is a greater underlying reality, and it is this, spiritual warfare. That though there is physical suffering, 
Christians are literally dying. That is but a symptom of a greater underlying reality of spiritual warfare. So let me ask you, when it comes to spiritual warfare, which ditch do you tend to fall in? Are you afraid? As you just think about, again, the devil or demons or angels, all that's happening, does that make you like feel fear? Or maybe you're ignorant. You're like, never think about it. I think most of us fall in one of two ditches, and I'm here today to say there has to be a better way. And so if, if the answer to spiritual warfare is not fear or ignorance, what is it? That's what we're going to talk about today. Go ahead, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 12. We have a ton of text to talk through today. It's going to be up on the screens, but if you have a physical Bible, would love for you to follow along. want to point out a few things for us to just see as we read through these chapters. So, Revelation 12, I'm going to start in verse 1. The Word of God says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. There it is. And the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God." A lot, a lot going on here. And I, if you have a physical Bible, you might see that there's a, a text break at verse 7 with different headings. I just want to say, a lot of good and godly people kind of argue about how this should be interpreted. But as you just have followed along with us in the book of Revelation and see the literature of the book and how cyclical it can be, I think the best way to interpret this text break is to say, Verses 1 through 6 is an initial vision that John gets from God, and verses 7 through 17 are maybe a second look at the same thing that help kind of paint in the lines to see what's really happening. And in Revelation 12, you see this cosmic spiritual battle. And there's three characters in the plot line I want us to, I want us to see. So the first is a woman, and you might note, Revelation 12, 1, it says, a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, when you see the word sign, think symbol. That's what signs do. They point to something. And so, as we just ask this question, who is this woman? We have to say, who does she symbolize? 
And one of the sweet things that we have done as a church is we taught through Genesis earlier this year. And this sign, the woman, takes us all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis 3, you might remember Adam and Eve, our ancestors, have, in Genesis 3, they have taken and eaten, they have sinned, and now God is talking to the serpent, and he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We see this woman represented as Eve. But we also see that she is going to have offspring. This offspring that the serpent is going to be at odds with. And as we begin to just track this seed through the book of Genesis, eventually you get to Genesis 37. A man named Joseph who has these dreams. Maybe you've heard the story before. But in Genesis 37 verse 9, it says this. It says, Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So this woman in Revelation 12 is a sign of God's covenant people. In Genesis 37, you see that expressed as Israel, the 12 tribes. But now we know today, based on Galatians 3, all who have placed their faith in Jesus are now children of Abraham. We are grafted in as the covenant people of God, and we are represented in Revelation 12 by the woman. The second character we see is the great red dragon. And the good news is the the rest of the text that we have read has actually told us who this great red dragon is. He is the devil, also called Satan. And I just want to say, I, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the devil today. People talk about dancing with the devil, or I've seen bumper stickers of this like pastel colored cute devil. And I just want to say, the devil is not cute. He is not playful. As you look at this text, you do not see cute and playful. You see destructive. He is out to devour. He is the accuser. He is the deceiver. And there's many names that he is called here. I think it's helpful for us to say, okay, number one, who is the devil? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 show us that the devil was created by God. He is not eternal. He was a created being. He was created as an angel who then wanted to take the place of God and because of that was cast out of heaven. And now we know, Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. That he's exercising some form of earthly rule and dominion. And yes, here is what he is after. He wants to destroy. He wants to deceive And he wants to accuse. In John 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. And in 1 Peter 5, we call him, we see him described as a lion looking for people to devour. And I think many of us in this room come in. And one thing that we deal with on a frequent basis is accusation. 
that we have been accused or we are being accused. And it's all rooted in brokenness. That's how the devil works, through brokenness. And so on one hand, I think the devil would love to use brokenness that has happened to us. Sin that has done to us. And a couple categories that I tend to think through are people that have experienced abuse and people that have experienced abandonment. That the devil would take the brokenness of abuse and abandonment and he would hold that over your head and over your story and say, you do not deserve to be loved. Look at your story. Don't you see what happened to you? Do you really think that there's a good God? And he would use that to lie and deceive and accuse you of the brokenness around you. And I just want to say, it's a lie. God is good. God does love you. And your story is not ultimately a picture of the devil's lies, but it is a pleading of God at work around you and in you. But the second way that I think deception and accusation happens is through sin that we choose to do. That the enemy would tell us a simple little lie that says, this is good for you, and that we would take the bait and eat. We would choose to sin, just like Adam and Eve. But then here's what the devil does. He turns around and he says, I can't believe you did that. Are you serious? You, you call yourself a Christian and you just did that? And he spouts out lies of accusation against you. And I know this to be true because I am just like you. I look at my past. I look at sin that I participated in, especially during my college years. And there are still moments to this day that the enemy would love to say, Jordan, there is no way God can use you. Are you serious? You think that God is going to use you? Look at your past. But it's a lie. And all that he wants to do is destroy the work of God amongst us. That's what he's after. And so when you just look at the description of the devil in Revelation 12, I think there's right reason for us to start to say, oh, wow. Like, there is a real enemy, and he is really powerful, and he is really out to get us. There should be maybe a sense of fear that starts to well up in us. But I want you to know, Veritas, you do not actually have to be afraid of the devil. And here's why. Because there's a third person in this plot line. Look at this. Verse 5, it says the woman gave birth to a male child. And note here in verse 5, it does not say a sign appeared, a male child. No, this is a real person. Who is this male child, Veritas? Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah from the line of Eve and from the people of Israel. He is the one who would crush the serpent's head all the way back to Genesis 3. We see in Isaiah 30, 14 and Psalm 2, 9, he has been prophesied and sang about through generations as the Messiah who would rule the nations with the rod of iron. You think about this enemy seeking to devour the child. Jesus was the male child born in Bethlehem who had to flee into the wilderness of Egypt in Matthew 2 because Herod was out to kill him. And we know him to be the sinless, spotless lamb of God who lived perfectly and poured out his blood on the cross for you and me. And that's not all. He's resurrected. He has risen and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus Christ and he is 
victorious. You see that. The enemy is defeated. Verse 8, he is defeated. There is no longer any place for him in heaven. And that's not all. By the time you get to verse 11, it says this. And they, talking about the people of God, have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So this victory is not just something that Jesus accomplished. It's something that he invites us into. Several weeks ago, my son Blaze came home from school. It was a Friday. And Ellie and I said, hey, what would you guys learn about at school today? He's three years old. He says, Jesus. He didn't learn about Jesus at school. There's no way. But he said, Jesus. We just played along. We said, great. What about Jesus? And he said, he died on the cross. And I'm like, yeah, we're tracking. But we said, and then what? And he said, then he rose again. Ha ha. And I was like, where did the ha ha come from? Like, that's typically like a, a taunt when he has a toy and Leo doesn't. He's like, I have the toy. You don't. Ha ha. And then I started thinking about this. I was preparing for the sermon. I said, he literally just taunted the devil, right? Like Jesus rose again. Ha ha. It's, it kind of seems familiar when you look back at your Bible and see how frequently believers would say, Death, where is your sting? Sin, what power do you have over me? To just look the devil in his face and taunt him and say, Jesus' resurrection is my victory. I'm reminded of Romans 8. This should be a familiar text to many of you. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, the power that the enemy once had in his accusation is now silenced if you are in Jesus Christ. Later on in this, in the same chapter, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him, Christ, who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. And so when you begin to think about this spiritual battle that is happening on a cosmic level, Veritas, let me tell you, you do not have to be afraid because your enemy is defeated. But that doesn't mean that we just walk into this spiritual battle cocky and apathetic and ignorant. Because we have to see what else is happening in this text. Look at it with me. Revelation 12 and verse 12. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So what we see here, we see a rich Old Testament reference to Exodus 19. 
that the God of Israel has, like an eagle with wings, swept up and carried and sustained the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. And this same God, Veritas Church, this same God is with us today. The same God that says, hey, I'm going to carry you through and I'm going to sustain you until you get to your promised land, which we know as heaven. We know that God is going to carry us. We know he's going to sustain us. But we also need to see what's happening here with the devil. It says he knows that his time is short. He knows he's been defeated. He knows his time is short. He's been cast down to earth. And now it says he is furious and is off to make war with us. So, as we get into Revelation 13, we're moving from this like cosmic spiritual battle now down to say, how is the devil waging war on earth today? This earthly battle that we're about to see in Revelation 13. Look with me. Verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This passage is frequently referred to as the Antichrist. And in my first couple years of following Jesus, I got really like weird into Revelation, probably more on the fearful end of the spectrum, just reading all the books, doing all the studies. And I had one frustrating thing when I started to study Revelation 13.1. And it's that as I tried to figure out who the Antichrist was, there were just so many good candidates. You know, it's like, I can't pick just one. And that's kind of the point. Because if you grow in your biblical literacy, you understand that this was not initially written to Americans in the year of 2023. It was written to an early church that was suffering and had a great understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And this picture here of the first beast is almost identical to Daniel 7. Almost identical. And I don't have time to go there because I'm already going to preach long today, but you should go back this week and read Daniel 7 and see the parallels. One of the sweet things here is that in Daniel 7, his vision of this beast is interpreted, and it's interpreted as a kingdom. 
So in Daniel, he knew that the beast was a picture of a perverted state, namely Babylon. And so if you're the original audience of Revelation 13, you're looking at this beast and you're thinking, who is the perverted state? Who is the empire that has rebelled against God and is killing Christians? It's Rome. This first beast is a sign of a perverted political sphere. And they clearly thought Rome because as you see in this text, verse 3, there's this mimicking of Jesus. Do you see that? It says one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. This like fake sense of resurrection. And Rome had just experienced what appeared to be a fake resurrection. Their emperor Nero had committed suicide. Civil chaos is through the roof. But by the time this letter is written, they're under the emperor Domitian, and they are ruling and reigning again. They see this fake resurrection, and what's happened is people are in awe and worship of the state. They're in awe and worship of the government you see that they are actually worshiping. In verse 4, who is like the beast? This is counterfeit praise. Praise that belongs to God, and they're mimicking Moses' words in Exodus 15 when he says, who is like our God? They are saying that to the government. And I just want to say, in a hyper-political age, Veritas, this is more of a caution to us than we are even aware of. To say, are we really in awe of, are we really putting our hope in and our security in a government, in an election cycle? Do we really think that the kingdom of God depends on the kingdom of the United States? This is a warning. And hear me when I say, I'm not telling you to not be politically engaged. We as Christians should vote, we should care, but I am saying, do not make the government your savior. Because it will fail you. It is a counterfeit. And I think one thing worth noting with the beast here is that he operates under a given authority. Though it looks like he has incredible power and authority, look at this. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth. He was allowed to exercise authority. Verse 7, he was allowed to make war on the saints. And authority was given him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. God is still in control. When you see all hell breaking loose in this text and around us, it's important to note, God is still in control. He is not surprised. And the enemy still answers to him. I do want to call out two things in this text that can be confusing. The first is in verse 7, when it says that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Seems a little counterintuitive to what I just talked about in Revelation 12, doesn't it? It's like, wait a second, Jordan, I thought you just said that we were the conquerors. And I'm here to tell you, you are. You are the conquerors. God's word is true in Romans 8 when it says we are more than conquerors in Christ. But here's what's also true. The enemy in your lifetime, if you stand firm for Jesus, here's what may happen to you. You may die for your faith. That was especially true to this original audience. As they would stand firm, as they would fail to bow down to the gods of culture, that they would be killed for their faith. Right? Later in the text, it's like being drugged into captivity and slain with a sword. 
the enemy might conquer you in the sense that he might kill you. And that's exactly what the enemy did to Jesus, right? Oh, I'm going to take him out. But Jesus' death actually gave way to victory. And in the same way, if the worst thing that the devil can do to you is kill you, and it sends you to heaven to be with your father and leads to the expanse of the gospel, who's really conquering? Us. We know the answer. So don't be confused there. We might die, but the gospel is still advancing and God is still winning. And I want to say, we do not, if you are in Christ, you do not need to be afraid of somehow falling into this worshiping of the Antichrist. Because in verse 8 it says, everyone on the earth will worship this beast. But it says, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's important. And there's a ton of confusion going on today about how salvation happens. I hear so many people say, I chose to follow God on this date. And I just want to say, based on this text, based on Ephesians 1 and 2, here's what actually happened. Before the foundations of the world, you didn't choose God. God chose you. You have been saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing so that you cannot boast. God, before the foundation of the world, chose you. And this is good news because here's the reality. If we could choose God, we could also unchoose God. But if God chose us, and he does not lie, he does not change his mind, that means we are secure. We have security in our salvation because God chose us before the foundation of the world. But I want to say, again, this security that we're meant to have in our gospel identity and in our salvation is not meant to make us lackadaisical and stagnant. Because though we might not fear this political beast, there's a second beast that we need to be on guard for. Read with me in chapter 13, verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. You're all wondering it. Okay, we'll get there. Be patient. Wait with me. As you look at the second beast... First off, what we actually see is this false trinity set up. We as Christians follow a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And now in Revelation 12, 13, you see this imitation. You see the devil, the first beast, and the second beast. 
this false trinity. Again, it's deceptive. Starts to kind of put on this image of God, though he is not God. And I think the danger of this second beast is that he operates in the religious sphere. So where the first beast operates in the political sphere, this second beast operates in the religious sphere. And if the first beast is the perversion of state government, the, the second beast is the perversion of true worship. True worship. And to the original audience, there was a Roman imperial cult that was worshiping false idols. And then today, even in the church, Christians worshiping a false image of Jesus. This false Christianity that compromises and caters to our culture. That's concerning to me. And when you see this second beast described as he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. How many things can look Christian? How many churches can even look Christian? But if they are not teaching what's true of God, they are speaking like the voice of a dragon, leading people astray, false Christianity. You might even see amazing things happening in front of you. That the second beast imitates the works of God. Right? Even calling fire down from heaven. This was Elijah's party trick in First and Second Kings. Like, sit back and watch this happen. Boom! Fire from heaven. And everyone's like, Elijah, there is no one like your God. Your God is real. That these things are happening and people are getting swept up into this deceptive sense of worship. How many of you have ever been tricked before? Okay, I know I have. More than I'd like to admit. But one of the most pointed examples that comes to mind was during my college years, I'm originally from the Fort Dodge area, and so I go to this place called Crossroads Mall in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Little sketchy, but that's all we had. And as I park my car and walk up, there's a tent set up selling cologne. And you're probably like, Jordan, you're an idiot. Okay. Buying cologne in a parking lot. I walk up to this tent and this gal says, Hey, I'm a wholesale distributor. This is normally like 60 bucks and I can get it to you for 20. What do you think? And in my head, I'm like, this is a scam. But then she does this. She opens a box. She hands me the bottle. I hold it in my hand. I smell it. I spray it. It's legit. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. And so I give her 20 bucks thinking I just scored a great deal. And by the time I get home, I open my box, and it's water. It's water. But that's how deception works. It looks real. It feels real. It smells real. You let your guard down, and before you know it, you have been deceived. And I just want to say, that is how deception actually works. And so as we look at the mark of the beast... I think there is a huge underplaying of how the devil actually deceives people. We are so foolish to think that the mark of the beast is something as simple as a microchip getting implanted in our forehead or a vaccine being administered through our hand. That is not tricky, okay? Anybody who reads their Bible could sniff that out. And that's not what the mark of the beast is ultimately about, 
in Revelation 13, the mark of the beast is not meant to identify the beast, but to characterize the beast. And to the original audience, a couple of things could have been going on in their heads. Number one, it could be a practice in their day called gematria, which is where you take the Hebrew alphabet, line it up with letters, and calculate something. Many people think that that could be true based on this charge in verse 18 to calculate the number of the beast. And what it could have meant for them, if you add up the letters of Nero Caesar, it would be 666. And so maybe the original audience said, oh, the beast may look like Nero Caesar. Not that he is Nero Caesar, but he might look like Caesar. But I I have a problem with that because I think down through the ages, if we continue to practice gematria, so many people's names equal 666. I mean, if you're a parent with little kids, go home and do the math. You might figure it out. It's like, that's why they're so ornery, right? So maybe that's why. But I think a better and easier calculation is this. 7 minus 1 equals 6. Does anybody remember what the number 7 means in Revelation? Completion or perfection. And just one less than that is 6. That's not hard math. But when you look at 666, it's like, that's so close to 777. It's so close, but it is incomplete and imperfect. And this whole idea of an incomplete and imperfect swear for your allegiance is actually rooted all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. God, t- God tells this to the people of Israel. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. The mark of the beast is this anti-Shema. It's going against the exact thing that God was telling Israel to do, which is this. Israel, make all of life all about God. Think about God. Work on the mission of God. And now, this beast is saying, hey, settle for anything less than God. Give your allegiance to lesser things. Think about lesser things. Worry about your investments prioritize climate and culture. Teach your kids to love sports, but do not teach them about God. That is a competing for allegiance. And what I'm worried about is that this is not just out there, okay? Meaning this is not just a world and culture problem. This is a problem inside the church. I just came across the thread two weeks ago. This is in the Cedar Rapids area, okay? Starts by saying this, I would like to start going to church with my kids. I'm like, great, sounds awesome. Continues this way, the church needs to be progressive, pro-LGBTQ, and with a focus on family and community. You know, based on the actual teachings of Christ, compassion, charity, etc. And I just want to say, I was not initially shocked by the post, I work with college students. I'm aware of kind of what they're up against in terms of the cultural day. 
two other things that actually were more concerning. The first is how many churches were recommended. That how many churches people could go to in the Cedar Rapids area that would not teach them the truth of the Bible, but would teach them something different and would call themselves a church. That was concerning. But perhaps even more concerning was this. A couple people who stand their ground and they say, hey, I think what you're after actually isn't a church. Here's what a church is. It's a people of God who sit around the word of God and submit to God. And I was shocked by the responses. The responses to these people that would stand their ground, quoting and twisting scripture and saying, no, you are the one that does not understand your Bible. Let me show you how the Bible says nothing against that. And that Christians that once were firm would back down and might even be swayed to say, I never knew that. Maybe I'm wrong. And I think it's easy sometimes in the church to look at gender and sexuality and how that gets expressed and and sometimes maybe pick on that. It's a huge issue in our culture today. But I want to say, it's not just that. It's so much more. It's so much more in our culture that's creeping into the church. This idea of, hey, did God really say that you can't have intimacy before marriage? I mean, come on, that's an ancient practice. Just move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You need to figure it out anyways. Or, is marriage really a covenant? I mean, covenant, that's Old Testament language. That doesn't really apply today. If you're not happy with him, just get out of it. Divorce is raging in the church. A prioritization of our happiness over our holiness. I mean, even seeing on social media this week, a friend who openly says, I was in sin because of this. And someone comments on her page and says, no, you are not in the wrong. You deserve this. A sense of entitlement that is just creeping into the church. And I just want to say, Veritas, anywhere that sin is championed or rationalized, deception is happening. Deception is happening anytime that we champion or rationalize our sin. Which means we need to know our Bibles. We absolutely need to know our Bibles. It's a call to faithfulness. And so as you look at Revelation 12 and 13, and you consider spiritual warfare, some in the cosmic realm, some in the earthly realm, and you're asking the question, how do I face spiritual warfare if I don't want to be afraid and I don't want to be ignorant? You could say it this way. Rejoice because the enemy is defeated and remain faithful because the enemy is deceitful. It's a both and On one hand, we rejoice. The enemy is defeated. We do not need to be afraid. But his time is short and he's ready to wage war. So we have to remain faithful because he is deceitful. And so what do we do with a text like this? I want to have three quick invites to, to begin to apply this text. The first is to place yourself in Christ. And what I mean by that is if you have never put your hope and your security and your confidence in the finished work of Jesus alone, today is a great day to do that. Because if you are not in Christ, you are up against a spiritual enemy who is way smarter and stronger than you, and you will lose. But if you are already in Christ, I'm telling you, cling to your gospel identity. 
do not be afraid, but rejoice, worship, be somebody that is marked by confidence in your Christianity. Secondly, place yourself in community. When I think about that illustration in 1 Peter 5, a lion seeking people to devour, he is after sheep that are walking in isolation. We actually need community. God has not just saved us from something, but he has saved us to something. It's called the local church. Maybe your next step is to jump into a connection group or join in on the membership class to say, I want to belong to a covenant community because here's what I know to be true. Lies are a lot louder when you're alone. Deceit is a lot more deceitful when you're alone. We need people around us to say, hey, wait a second, I don't think you should do that. Or wait a second, that sounds like a lie. I need to remind you of what's true. Place yourself in community. And last but not least, we need to be a people that are placed in God's word. To be a people that just live our lives in God's word. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, this idea of like before your eyes and on your hands to say, I want to see everything through the lens of scripture. I want all of my actions to be aligned with scripture. And here's the good news. In a world full of counterfeits, you don't need to study the thousands of counterfeits. Here's what you need to do. Study the real thing. Know the real thing. Because when you know the actual word of God, it's a lot easier to spot out deceitfulness and lies. And Veritas, if we can do that, here's what's true. We live in a world that is fearful and ignorant. A world that is afraid of what's happening around us, afraid of what's coming next, and so many people that just want to push things down and suppress them and pretend that they're not there. But that does not have to be us. If we can actually begin to apply Revelation 12 and 13, we are going to be a faithful and courageous church. This church that's described and commanded in Revelation 12 to endure to the end. Amen? All right, pray with me. Father, we want to be the type of church that endures to the end. The type that remains faithful in the midst of suffering and evil and persecution in a world filled with lies and accusations. But God, we cannot do that alone. We confess that we need you. And Jesus, thank you that you are our Savior. You are the promised Messiah who has crushed the head of the serpent. You are the one ruling and reigning and sitting at the right hand of the Father. You are the one that's interceding for us, making sure that no accusation sticks against us. And thank you for the gift of the Bible your word to us today, that we can know the truth. But Spirit, we need your help to live according to the truth. So make your word sweet to us this week and change our hearts to long to follow you. We pray this in your name. Amen.